Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. Happy Tuesday. I'm Emily Wilkins. Coming up on today's show, we're going to be talking with Senator Marsha Blackburn on a technology hearing today in the Senate. We have stuff on taxes. We have stuff on President Biden's joint address to Congress tomorrow. I'm Emily Wilkins, along with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sean Zeno and Rick Davis, who is actually joining me live in the studio. Very excited in this time of COVID. Feels like nature is healing. We're getting back to normal. Uh, and we've got some more news today on President Biden's tax plan. I feel like it's been coming out all this week in the head of his April 28th address to Congress. Today's news, $80 billion to boost the Internal Revenue Service's audit capacities over the next decade. The idea, if there are more audits, if there are better audits, we can catch people who are trying to finagle their way around the tax code. Uh, joining us on the line to discuss a little bit more is our Bloomberg Tax Senior Reporter, Allison Vesperell. Allison, thank you so much for joining us today. Walk us through a little bit of this proposal. So much of what President Biden has tried to do with his tax plan is target the wealthy and the rich. Is this yet a, another proposal of his that would do that? Yes, absolutely. So that's what we're really seeing. Uh, we're going to see in this plan that's coming up. Um, so obviously you mentioned the $80 billion uh, for the IRS over the next 10 years. You know, the thought is that that could bring in $700 billion in additional revenue. Um, you know, I think one of the, the things that you have to think about with that, though, is that you're going after the wealthiest individuals, the wealthiest corporations. Those are the people that have the resources to, to kind of fight you back. Uh, it also, you know, the agency has lost more than 20,000 employees over the last decade. And so it's going to take time for them to bring those people back, get the people trained so that they can do those highly complicated audits. Uh, what we're also seeing, though, and what we're learning today is that the Biden administration would end a currently allowed tax benefit, benefit known as a step-up in basis, which allows heirs to pay a much smaller capital gains tax on their inherited property. Um, so that benefit would go away, which would mean significantly higher capital gains for those heirs. Um, the Senate Democrats have proposed something similar, but with an exemption. We're still waiting to see if the Biden administration would take that kind of approach. Um, another proposal aimed, again, at the rich would raise the top individual tax rate to 39.6% for individual or for taxpayers making at least 
$400,000. That's up from 37% today. And we're also seeing that individuals or married couples earning more than $1 million a year will have to pay that higher 39.6% rate on their capital gains, up from 20%, plus a surtax that helps fund Obamacare. What that all means is that wealthy investors can face a federal capital gains tax rate as high as 43.4%. So, you know, almost double what they pay today. Allison, this is Rick. I was wondering if uh, you could comment a little bit in general about uh, the the, com- the combination of all these things, $700 billion in additional revenue uh, by the IRS going through those people who are technically flanagling, uh, you know, on their taxes, and then, and then these big almost doubling of the capital gains tax and, 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 and almost as much on uh, the, uh, the personal uh, top rate and on top of that, uh, a significant seven percent increase on corporate taxes. Uh, do, do we ha- do we are we concerned with this kind of heavy load coming in year one? I mean, obviously, all these things will be phased in, but um, but is it the kind of thing that could actually stifle economic growth if 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 we see this kind of attack on wealth creation? So this this question was actually raised uh, yesterday in a White House briefing, and one of the president's top economic advisors you know, said specifically on the capital gains increase that they're not worried that this will hurt long-term investment, um, essentially, you know, saying that there are other things that play into investment decisions. We've seen Republicans, though, or, you know, other opponents of that change, you know, saying that it will. So it's, I think it remains to be seen, but those discussions are definitely playing out. And I think that will play a factor in, you know, how these negotiations go on Capitol Hill and whether all of this ultimately gets passed. And Allison, so much of what uh, the Biden administration, they want these taxes to cover that upcoming infrastructure bill, the social infrastructure bill. Um, They also sort of have a reason there to play up how much these taxes are going to come in because they want to say, hey, look, we have the bill paid for. So they've tossed out that $700 billion number. Do you think that that's an accurate estimate or is the Biden administration being a little bit optimistic here? Right. And so that $700 billion figure is just for increasing the IRS's audit capability. So, you know, we've seen we've seen lower numbers uh, when you're talking about increasing investment in the IRS. We've seen higher numbers. I think the big factor is what I what I mentioned at the top of this call. You know, this is not going to be an immediate return on investment. If you think you're going to fund the IRS and see these huge numbers in the first year, that's just not realistic. You know, I've talked to former officials who have said if you're hiring someone straight out of college, it can take, you know, two years to to fully train them on some of these really complicated issues, you know, that you find on returns of wealthy individuals and wealthy corporations. For someone more experienced, uh, you may still have to train them on very specific topics and you have to teach them how to, you know, look at a return and actually find these maybe tax discrepancies or places where people are underreporting. So, it's not. It's definitely not immediate. I think it remains to be seen on how much can actually be brought in. I think everyone agrees that if you fund the IRS more, you will see some money coming back. Um, but there's just some disagreement over, you know, how big that figure actually is. So, Allison, can I take you back to the capital gains increase? If well, I'm hearing mixed uh, mixed data on this. If the increase did go through, would we see an increase in revenue from that, or or no? Because that's something I'm hearing mixed messages on. 
Right. So there's been uh, there was a Penn Wharton um, you know model that came out that basically said if you just do that in a vacuum without getting rid of the stepped up basis benefit that I mentioned that you could actually lose revenue. If you tie those two together, then you you know you will see an increase. Um, so I think that's part of the interesting thing about these provisions is that they all interact with each other and you know, whether or not there's revenue coming in kind of depends on what gets enacted in the end. Excellent. Well, Allison, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. That was Bloomberg Tax Senior Reporter, Allison Vesperell, always on top of the latest and greatest news in taxes. I mean, this is just such an interesting plan that we're seeing the Biden administration come out with. Clearly, this is all targeted at finding pay-fors for their wider policy. But at the same point, it does seem that there's a potential that the entire package isn't going to be paid for and that some of these tax proposals that they're putting forward, we've already seen moderate Democrats come out against how high they are. Yeah, Emily, I think you're exactly right. I mean, you think about it, they've already passed $2 trillion worth of stimulus, and a lot of that was tax cuts in the form of stimulus payments and child tax credits. And now they're heaping $4 trillion more trillion on top of that through these two budget items that they're pushing for. And we've already heard that not only is the tax plan coming under some assault, but even the elements of those $4 trillion worth of programs are coming under assault. So mix all that in. And you wonder, is it going to collapse under its own weight, or will there be efforts uh, underway in Congress to sort of pull out the pieces that can work and be paid for without these steep tax cuts or steep tax increases, and also not as expansive of a program? I would think the Biden administration are in deal-making mode, and they'd probably take at this stage anything they can get. Jeannie, I'm wondering, you know, most of these tax increases, they are targeted, like uh, Allison said, they're targeted at the rich, at the wealthy, at these major corporations. How does that play with the American people, particularly with Democratic voters? Is this what they want to see? Is this going to sort of rile them up? Or is this going to run into issues with the fact that there are a lot of Democratic voters who are very wealthy and are owners or have a stake in these large companies? Yep. First, I want to say I'm jealous of the two of you that you're together in studio and I miss you both um, but in terms of your question uh, you know I think I, I was thinking this morning we look at the census data that came out yesterday and you see people fleeing high-tax states like New York and California for places like Florida and Texas you couple that with a potential capital gains increase that in states like California and New York will put people at about 55 you know a little more a little less percent taxation those are big, big numbers. So I, I think, you know, the story on taxes politically is usually as long as it's not hitting me, I'm OK with it. But the minute it hits me, that's a problem. So I think what the Biden administration is going to have to do very clearly is to argue that this will not be transferred down. And already Republicans are speaking back about that. They are saying, you think this isn't going to hit you? Well, look at what's going to happen to the market. Look at what's going to happen to your 401k, to your IRA to, you know, your income, your college savings, 529s, et cetera, if this goes through. So I think there's a lot of selling to do on the Democratic's part here. Absolutely. 
Well, coming up next, if you've ever sat down to watch one YouTube video and then realized four hours later that you were still watching, you're going to want to hear our discussion with Senator Marsha Blackburn, sent her afternoon grilling executives at Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter on their algorithms. When we come back, I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Emily Wilkins along with Bloomberg's politics contributors, Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, who is in person with me in the studio. I'm just going to jump right into our next guest. I'm so excited to have her. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee and a member of the esteemed Senate Judiciary Committee. This afternoon, she was talking with the heads of Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. You know what? I I've been here. Rick, I'm sure you've been here. Senator, I I I'm sure that you are far above the, uh, uh, the habit of wasting a great deal of time on some of these social media sites. But scrolling through Facebook and Twitter for hours and hours or watching multiple YouTube videos, you had a question at the hearing showing that it might not really be so harmless that some of these algorithms program addiction among children and algorithms that can actually sort of show content that becomes more and more extreme. And Senator, I'm wondering if you can just start a bit by talking about whether these social media algorithms is there something that Congress needs to do here? Do they need to step in to how these algorithms display content? One of the things we know from pediatricians and mental health uh, professionals is there is an impact on children, on their development, on their mental well-being. Uh, we know the issue with teens and suicides and the impact that is attributed to social media on that. We also know that the algorithms have a tendency to follow you. You know, it's if they they create a bubble for you, basically. The things that you go in and look at, they send you more of that. They find out what you're interested in. So instead of expanding your worldview and having the world at your fingertips, what social media will do is feed you more of what you're looking at. So it has a tendency to narrow the variety and the diversity of things that you will search for, look for, be curious about, or be drawn to. And, and Senator, sort of going off of that then, I mean, what, if anything, does is Congress's role here? I mean, what should Congress be doing now that we know these yeah. certain things about these algorithms? 
And what we need to do is look at changing their business model. Now, my approach on this, I call the virtual you protection agenda because you have to um, deal, first of all, with online privacy and give individuals the right to protect their virtual you and their presence online. That, I think, is an imperative. You have to give them the ability to say to big tech, no, I will opt in and give you the right to share my sensitive information if I want you to share that. If I want you to share my uh, browsing information, for instance, then if I choose to keep that private, I'm going to opt out and disallow you to share that information. So you have to have that opt-in and opt-out reserved to the individual user. You also need to have one set of rules for the entire Internet ecosystem. You need to have one regulator in charge of this, which is the FTC. You have to have the ability for the individual who is on a platform if they choose to opt in and block and opt out and block you from using different information, you cannot boot them off that platform. And they they have the right. If you're going to be the public square, then the public square is open to everyone equally. And that is what uh, these big platforms started out to be. They wanted to be the big public square. And if they're going to do that, then they have to allow individuals, even though that individual wants to reserve their privacy. Uh, Senator Blackburn, I'm so happy to talk to you because one of the things that came up today and has come up a lot in the context of this discussion from a conservative side is this issue of personal responsibility. And I understand you're talking about children and then it comes to parental responsibility. So what is your view? And and, and I know (laughs) I don't have a lot of time for this, but what is your view on that issue of personal responsibility or parental responsibility versus blame for the tech platforms in this context? text. Well, and whether you're looking at utilization of social media platforms or you're looking at vendors that are selling online, there is a certain amount of personal responsibility there. But you also have to look at the fact that when you are using these social media platforms, you are the product because their value is built on the number of eyeballs that they can hold and have on their site. And then what they will do is monetize by selling advertising. They're big advertising agencies, and they sell advertising to different companies. So this is why you need privacy, you need data security, you need Section 230 reforms, and then antitrust. Senator Marsha Blackburn with us. Stick around. She'll be back with us after the break. I'm Emily Wilkins, along with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Uh, So unfortunately, Senator Blackburn had to run off to votes. The good news is that your U.S. Senate is getting work done for you. A bunch of nominations going on today. 
But good news, we still got plenty to discuss on today's program. It has been a nonstop news day. Take it from earlier today when our colleague David Weston spoke to Democratic Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy of Florida about President Biden's $2.25 trillion infrastructure package. Here's the sound on that. I don't think anybody can disagree that it has been decades too long overdue that we have not made real investments in um, our infrastructure. And that enables our economy. We have to make these investments so that we remain competitive, um, especially with our near peer competitors like China. Well, that was Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy, uh, one of the more moderate Democrats within the House, kind of really a good barometer of what can or cannot get done here. Um, Jeannie, I want to come to you here for a second, because obviously the speech that we're going to hear from President Biden tomorrow is more of him selling this plan to the American people, really making sure that he has the buy-in from voters across the political spectrum. And I'm wondering how important is the infrastructure component going to be to the more social component, the component that talks about the child care tax credit, the paid leave, uh, potentially a few things dealing with health care. It's such an important question because I think um, that the selling aspect of this is critical for the Biden administration. And they know that. They learned that from President Obama. Um, and, and he did not do enough of that with the health care bill. And that came back to be a problem for him. So they've got to do that. They've got to do that starting tomorrow, which is what they intend to do. Now, we know from polls, Monmouth being one of the latest, but there's been several public polls that vast swaths of this plan, both the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan, register as popular to the American public. The problem is, is that once they get down into the weeds, making, you know, making the deals they need to make to get something this mammoth done, that's where we may see some drop off in some of those numbers. And that's what I think the Biden administration really has to, you know, really steal themselves against. And I, I hear, and I'm sure you're hearing it, that they're going to be using some big sweeping language to make this point. Competitiveness, democracy over autocracy, reminiscent of LBJ and FDR to try to rally the troops, if you will, and convince the voters to convince their members of Congress to get behind the bill. Of course, all that said, this is going to come down to where do people like Joe Manchin, Chris Coons, Kristen Sinema, uh, you know, some of those people, Shelley Moore Capito, who David Weston just talked to as well, where do they sit on this? And that's where the convincing needs to happen. Jeannie, and I want to pick up on that because, you know, while he's selling to the American people like what you described, he's got to sell to Congress. And, and no more important individual to sell to than, than Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia. And he's been very clear. He's like, look, I want traditional infrastructure. I don't want all these bells and whistles. And, and, and he's also talked a lot about the fact that he wants us to go through regular order, take it through the committees allow amendments, do the job of Congress, not reconciliation. And then at the end, he says, and by the way, you're charging too much in taxes to pay for all this. Now, if you ask me, there are a lot of things to unpack in that comment. And I think as the Biden administration looks at this, they're going to have to figure out a way to be able to handle not just the American public, but a lot of these questions being raised in Congress today. 
And Rick, I also want to ask you a little bit. I mean, you were a former national campaign manager for John McCain. You're in touch with what Republicans want. One of the things that President Biden has said that he wants to do with his speech, or at least Biden's advisors has said he wants to do with this speech, is really reach out to those Republican voters who feel disenfranchised, who feel that the government has sort of abandoned them a little bit, and who voted for President Trump. What message do they need to hear from President Biden tomorrow? Yeah, it's a good question, Emily, because he talks a lot about wanting to reach across the aisle and be bipartisan. Uh, but in the first 100 days, which this speech will signify, look what I've accomplished, there's no bipartisanship in those accomplishments. Uh, everybody wants to tackle COVID. They agree with that. But he passed a Democrat-only COVID bill. And the bills on the floor now don't have a bipartisan feature to them. So uh, at the end of the day, he's going to have to put something on the table that Republicans can vote for. And right now, they don't see anything coming their way. So, Rick, am I taking it that you're not buying the Biden administration's new redefined definition of what is bipartisanship. It means nothing about what's happening in Washington, but is it supported in the polls? You know, look, I mean, I think everybody has always said, you know, pollsters all the time tell me, look, you know, there's a lot of, lot of polarization out there in America, but one thing they all agree is they want Congress to work together. So I actually think uh, what we talked about with Joe Manchin a minute ago, where he says, you know, let this go, let the infrastructure bill go through committees. That's Congress working together. Don't try and bypass the process. Let them do it. And then whether or not Joe Biden wants to sign what comes out of that is up to him. But it's up to the will of Congress to put those pieces together. And my guess is there's a stronger chance that you'll have a bipartisan approach if you allow that process to go forward. So it looks like at this point, I mean, we're really just sort of very much paying attention to President Biden at this point. I mean, it's always interesting with these State of the Union addresses, or rather the joint addresses to Congress, on exactly how much meaning they have and exactly how much they change the game. But it seems like at this point, if President Biden has decided that his main message needs to go to the American voters rather than members of Congress, that this is an opportunity for him to really go ahead and take advantage of it tomorrow. So it'll be interesting to hear exactly what President Biden says. We're going to be covering it all tomorrow night. Please stick with us here at Bloomberg. And coming up, it's the day you've been waiting for. The CDC is lowering its standards for mask mandates. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Emily Wilkins, along with Bloomberg's politics contributors, Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, live from the Bloomberg DC Bureau. It is little more than 24 hours before President Joe Biden gives his first address to Congress. Don't call it the State of the Union. 
That's the next year. This is the president's first address, so it is called the Joint Address. little fun fact of trivia for you to take there into your weekend. Uh, but, you know, this address, it comes at this really important time as President Biden is trying to sell the nation on his infrastructure plan, on his quote-unquote social infrastructure plan. That's things like child tax care credits, paid time off, things that go to workers. But, of course, there's been a lot of partisan contention over this speech. Wyoming Senator Senator John Barrasso, a Republican, criticized President Biden today, saying that he's been working too closely with progressive lawmakers. And he talked a little bit to us about President Biden's planned address. Here is the sound on that. Tomorrow night when the president addresses the nation, he usually stands behind the seal of the president. What it really ought to say tomorrow is not seal of the president. It should say sold out to progressives. Ooh, burn. Uh, Rick Davis, who is here with me live in the studio, uh, a sign we are still six feet away, but I, we are at the point where we can go maskless according to CDC guidance. But tomorrow night, uh, there has been this comparison between President Biden and between President Franklin D. Roosevelt and Biden's proposal and Roosevelt's New Deal. Although the two presidents, they've been really different with their styles. So who's showing up tomorrow night? The bipartisan dealmaker Joe Biden or FDR? Well, we know Hillary Clinton used to channel Eleanor, so it's now, I guess, Joe Biden's <laughs> chance to do a little channeling of uh, FDR. You know, I really, it, it's a great question because uh, when you look at the policies and you, and you look at the Republican reaction to it, I, I feel like I'm being transported back to the early 1930s. You know, the policies are sweeping. It's a redistribution of wealth across a lot of different economic uh, areas, uh, massive spending to bring the government out or the, the country out of an economic collapse. And, uh, and the arguments the Republicans have is, hey, you know, in, in 1933, it was, hey, these are socialist programs. And what are the, what's happening today? Hey, these are socialist programs. And so I, I suspect we're going to see uh, a, a, a Joe Biden that sounds a lot more like FDR than the old Joe Biden. Absolutely. And it'll be very interesting to see exactly how he sells it, because President Biden has said that he does want to sell this this message. Sell is probably not his preferred word, but he does want to give the message to Republicans, including Republicans who voted for Trump. Obviously, he's trying to get them on board with this plan. Um, but I also want to talk a little bit about some other news that happened this week. Uh, reapportionment, which sounds very wonky, but basically means that the 2020 census is done, and they sat there and said, okay, how many people are in each state? And then they said, all right, we need to assign each state a new number of U.S. representatives. So we saw some states go up. We saw other states go down. States going down, notably California for the first time. New York, uh, just by a, a tiny, tiny margin, wound up losing one of their seats, and a lot of areas along the Rust Belt, Michigan, Ohio. And I'm wondering here if this is sort of a good time for us to step back and look at the policies of some of these states. I mean, Texas, which is a state known for business-friendly policies and low taxes, picked up not one, but two more seats in the House of Representatives. That's a little bit more power for Texas and for Texas voters. I mean, Jeannie, can you maybe weigh in a little bit here 
is should we be looking at this reapportionment and sort of saying, hey, this whole low taxes, business friendly policy, we can clearly see from how Americans are moving that Americans seem to prefer that to some of the high tax policies in other states. I think there is truth to that. It's hard to draw a direct comparison because, of course, historically, the northeastern states are the oldest states and, and people do tend to move out and stretch across the country historically. But to your point, where these population centers are going are these lower tax, more business friendly states. That has been the trend. And we see that not just with individuals, of course, but we see it with corporations as well. Um, they have workers. They want people to be able to live and afford to live in the place right near where they work. Much harder to do in a place uh, like New York, where I happen to be. And I just want to circle back on New York for a minute and say that, you know, you mentioned how close it was. It is astonishing that New York missed out on retaining its seat by 89 people. I mean, I think there's 89 people in my office right now. So, you know, you imagine that. And this is why Andrew Cuomo came out today, came out today and said New York is going to be looking at legal options, which raises another challenge, right? Which is that this thing was already pushed back because of the Trump policy in last year and because of COVID. We may see lawsuits that really make it difficult as we look to the midterm elections in 2022 and these redrawing of these districts in these states where obviously Republicans retain the advantage across the country is going to be difficult. You know, Emily, I'm picking up on the redistricting theme that you were talking about. I talked to a couple of candidates who were like thinking of running for Congress this next cycle. And one of them was in Arizona thinking they were going to run in an a brand new district, which they didn't get. Womp, womp. And womp, womp. And, uh, and then, uh, it, in addition to that, one was coming out of Texas who says, geez, I don't know where these districts are going to be. I mean, I don't even know where to live. you got to live in your district, so where are you going to live if you don't know where the districts are going to be? Yeah, so move there's to a state be... where they don't have that. Just move to a state where as long as you're there, you're totally good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go to the state that didn't get affected. Um, and so when you look at the process, too, where you have some states uh, are really a political line drawing where the legislature gets around. If you're a majority Republican, you draw the lines that are good for Republicans to states that have commissions that have no political, you know, sort of uh, bias to them and are going to try and put these things down by geography. It's it's you're going to have a long time before you actually know what the demographic impact of this is going to be politically. Especially this year, because remember, this all got delayed with the census. We're getting these reapportionment numbers much later than previous years. And at this point, states don't know yet what areas have gained or lost population. Remember, these congressional districts, um, I mean, they they are drawn a a little bit, you know, they got the gerrymandering, you got the sort of puzzle pieces there. But at the same point, they are expected to sort of encapsulate encapsulate a certain percentage of people. And so it matters if, you know, how much cities grew, how much the suburbs grew. That's all going to factor into some of these calculations, as well as, of course, the state legislatures. I mean, they play a very critical part right here. And at this point, Republicans have the upper hand. There are more state legislatures that are controlled by Republicans, the House, the Senate, and the governor. And they are going to have a bigger say, and they're going to want to redistrict in favor of Republicans. So I think I think I saw a statistic yesterday saying that about three to five seats could be gained for Republicans simply through this redistricting process alone. Oh, yeah. And when you look at a midterm election, like what's coming up, the advantage is always with the party out of power anyway. So typically you see a 30 vote swing in the House of Representatives just because of a midterm election, which would 
firmly put the House in Republican control, and then you start adding advantages that they may have coming out of redistricting, and you really got to wonder who's the next Speaker of the House of Representatives in 2022. And, and, you know, sorry, I was just going to say that I think this brings us back to what you guys were just talking about, about, you know, Biden wanting to be FDR. He may want to be FDR, but FDR also had a much wider margin in Congress. And as you were just talking about, this is going to get much, much more narrow, likely going into the midterm. They have a narrow majority in in the House right now. Think about 2022, if Emily, to your point, Republicans gain a few seats just by this practice, let alone the historical reality in the modern era that the president's part, the party of the president in charge is going to lose seats. They are in danger of losing, losing this. So if Biden wants to go big, he's going to have to do it now or he's not going to have much of a choice after this. Jeannie, that is exactly the mindset of a number of lawmakers who I talked to on Capitol Hill, particularly progressive lawmakers who are saying, you know what, we have the keys to the car right now and we are not guaranteed them after the end of 2022. So let's do this. Let's go big. And I think, too, in the in terms of going big, there is a memory of what happened the last time that Democrats controlled the House, the Senate and the White House. They got through that Affordable Care Act. Was it controversial? Yes, Did it cost them seats? Yes. Is the whole country still on board with it? No. But they were able to get it done. And it is still there. And it is at this point, I think, a really lasting piece of policy that's going to be difficult for Republicans to overturn completely. And so Democrats sort of have seen that when they do do these big pushes, they are able to get things done. And I know that that's really on the minds of a lot of individuals right now. The question, though, is can they do it with 50 votes in the Senate and get anything passed there between now and really the end of this session, nevertheless reloading for an election year, which it even becomes more difficult. So as you said, Emily, the clock is ticking. Absolutely. And that's why we're continuing to watch those those moderate members of Congress. Heck, I mean, at this point, any senator can sort of push the button and be the one to sort of stall up legislation. Keeping an eye on that definitely going to be a discussion that we're going to continue to have throughout the next several weeks, next several months. Jeannie, Rick, thank you guys both so much for your time and talents. Thank you to Allison. Thank you to Senator Blackburn. And thank you to all of our listeners who are joining us for today's show. Tune in tomorrow. Make sure you tune in for our Biden joint address coverage. Thank you for listening. I'm Emily Wilkins, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.